What's up, guys? Thank you so much for listening to and supporting Picture Lock. I absolutely love film, as you know, and have given my life to studying the medium. As a filmmaker, I understand what it takes to make a film from its inception to the big screen. As a critic, I've been able to see the business of film from the marketing side of things. And as a film festival director, I've been able to see the distribution side, but more importantly, the enormous amount of talented filmmakers out there creating and crafting stories from their heart. And that's why I've started Picture Lock PR. If you're a filmmaker or producer looking to engage audiences and create relevance around your latest or upcoming project, head over to PictureLockPR.com. We can help you with your film's publicity from pre to post-production. Get more information and see the clients we've helped in the past at PictureLockPR.com. PictureLock PR. Finally, a partner as passionate as you. Today's podcast is brought to you by LootCrate.com. Save 10% on any new subscription at trylootcrate.com slash picturelock. Enter promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. And it goes a little something like this. It's Picture Lock on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. Welcome to another episode of the world-famous award-winning show. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, filmmaker, film festival director, film critic, film publicist, and lover of film and TV. You can find all the back episodes and so much more at PictureLockShow.com. If it sounds like my voice is not as hmm, clean as usual, it's because... I am in Casa de la Devin Gallagher in the living room right now recording this uh, in D.C. for uh, a number of things for D.C. Black Film Festival. I'm speaking tonight to some of the grad students at American University. And uh, as of the time this airs yesterday, Thursday, I'm blessed to receive the Donald H. McGannon Award. Um, so I'm really excited to be here, but that's why it might sound a little bit different. But this week on the show, I have Jennifer Townsend, director, producer of Catching Sight of Thelma and Louise, Alice Stone, director of Angelo Unwritten, and Talia Tabone, director of Sky and Ground. These are three documentary filmmakers with films you can see now. Plus, I'll have your answers to the picture lot question of the week last week. But first, First Man may be the greatest space race film ever in my book. I've got an interview with the film's director and some spoiler-free thoughts on the film. And that's all ahead on Picture Lock. Are you sure? Yeah. Be an adventure. First man to walk on the moon. That'd be something. We've chosen a job so difficult requiring so many technological developments. We are gonna have to start from scratch. So I didn't do this interview. Um, it's one of the generic press junket interviews, but I did want to play it because I saw uh, First Man and I just thought it was absolutely uh, incredible. Um, you can read the full review on PictureLockShow.com, but this is a film that's not really about the the fantasy and accomplishment of going to the moon and landing on the moon. Instead, it's more about perspective. It's about sacrifice. Uh, it's about relationships and all that it took to actually get to the moon. So I, I definitely want to get you guys excited and amped about going to see this film. I'm not the biggest, you know, space nerd and I'm not always excited about biopics, but <laughs> let me tell you, uh, this will be a film that's mentioned around award season. I definitely think it could probably take home, uh, at least for sound, sound mixing, um, an award, an Oscar there, because you have no choice but to be submerged in 
the world, uh, the things that Neil Armstrong heard, what he saw. Um, it's just an amazing thing. So here's an interview with Damien Chazelle, director of First Man. It's nearly 50 years since a man first landed on the moon. How significant is it that when we look up the, at the moon to realize that there were actually men there at some point? And do you think we take that for granted? I think, uh, I mean, I, I think it's this incredible thing that's still hard to fathom. You know, I have a hard time fathoming, fathoming, fathoming it. Um, and, uh, but I remember actually, you know, even during the process of making this movie, uh, every time I'd look at the moon, it seemed to speak to me in a different way than it had before. I think it has something to do with learning just how hard this enterprise was, uh, um, realizing that I had almost taken it for granted uh, uh, that people had walked on the moon. Um, but to actually look at the period in history where people turned a fantasy into reality, it's a fantasy that humanity had had for millennia, uh, but at this crucial moment in history, a group of people decided to turn that fantasy into reality. And it was incredibly dangerous and difficult and came with a whole host of doubts and uncertainties and sacrifices and loss, um, but it happened. And I think it's uh, just an incredibly inspiring story. What inspires you personally about Neil and Janet Armstrong? Just how much they went through together. You know, they were, uh, uh, they were this couple, um, had a lot in common, but also in many cases, it was almost as though they were forged by by uh, by various ordeals that they went through. I mean, I, did, I had no idea before I started researching this movie that um, Neil had lost a daughter. Neil and Janet had lost their daughter right before Neil joined uh, uh, the astronaut program. Um, or that so many of their closest friends uh, were, were uh, some of the people who perished along the road to the moon, fellow astronauts. Um, or the brushes with death that Neil himself had had and how Janet had to deal with those on her end. I mean, just the, the, the uh, the sacrifices that they as a couple and their family as a unit had to go through during this sort of eight-year period that the movie covers, it's just uh, uh, it was sort of eye-opening for me. You also, part of your vision for the movie was to, was to show how dangerous it was. You know, for, for people who have only seen the trailer, what can they experience in terms of, of the excitement level that people can find in First Man? Well, I think, you know, we, we wanted it to feel almost like virtual reality in space, you know. We wanted it to feel like, uh, like you are there in the capsule, you're seeing what Neil sees, you're hearing what he hears, you are being launched into space, you are walking on the moon. We tried to approach everything as immersively as possible, uh, with sound, with imagery, IMAX photography on the moon, uh, just really put the audience in the shoes of Neil Armstrong. Um, but I think also what was even more important to us was the personal story, you know, that, uh, that at, at the end of... At the end of the day, this was a story about human beings, uh, 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 ordinary people who were thrust into extraordinary circumstances, and, uh, and how they had to find a way to balance life on the ground with life in space. Um, and so I think the story of Neil and Janet, uh, you know, as beautifully played by Ryan and, and Claire Foy, I, I think that's a, an endlessly inspiring story. Could this movie have been made without NASA's cooperation? I don't think so. I think this movie depended on, on, on uh, NASA in so many ways. I mean, NASA was generous enough to open their doors to us completely. Uh, uh, the actors spent a ton of time uh, uh, sort of in training and, and, and uh, 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 meetings at NASA, both in Houston and here on the Cape. We were able to shoot here on the Cape uh, uh, for a bit. Uh, we had uh, uh, astronauts on set as we were shooting to kind of make sure we were getting things right. People like Buzz Aldrin and Mike Collins and, and Al Warden, a later Apollo astronaut. Um, we spent a lot of time with Neil's family. His sons were incredibly helpful. His ex-wife Janet, uh, who Claire Foy plays in the movie, was incredibly generous with her time. Um, we just had an immense support system. I think people really cared about um, any movie by Neil Armstrong being accurate, being authentic. They wanted us to get this right, so they wanted to make sure that you know, they gave us the resources to do that. And it was tremendously helpful. Again, First Man is out this weekend. You definitely want to check it out. Hit up picturelockshow.com to find my review in the new releases section. So let's go ahead and jump into our interviews for this week. Hey, this is Thomas DeBus, uh, founder of Smart Film Fest. Uh, you're listening to Picture Lock. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm Kevin Sampson and Catching Sight of Thelma and Louise had its beginnings in 1991 when viewers from around the country shared their visceral reactions 
to Thelma and Louise in writing in a national survey. 25 years later, the same viewers shared their original reactions and present day views of the meanings this cultural touchstone holds for them. I have the director producer of Catching Sight of Thelma and Louise, Jennifer Townsend on the line. Jennifer, welcome to Picture Lock. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Jennifer, the first question I always start out with, when did you first fall in love with film? I The first remembrance I have of actually going to a theater was when I was four and a half years old. And that was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And it was a theater not too far from where I lived. And I went with my two older brothers who were supposed to take care of me when we got there. <laughs> so um, so my, my mother finally let me go because this was, this was ancient history. Um, I'm pushing 80, and this so oh, wow. four and a half years old. I mean, that was in the early 40s. And um, we had these, every Saturday there were the serials, you know, like... Um, Black Panther or um, Superman. I'm not sure what they were, but there was always these, oh, cowboys like Lash LaRue. Mm. And, and and you get, so now it's interesting. Now today we're back to cereals. So <laughs> yeah. things that go around come around. And so anyway, it was a Saturday afternoon and they were, the brothers were going off to the cereals and I probably begged my mom probably for weeks before that, and she finally caved in and let me go with them. That was the beginning of my film experience. Wow. You know, uh, that is that is incredible. Um, man, I don't even remember. I can't remember the first film that I went to, um, but the fact that you can recall uh, going with your brothers. And, you know, it was funny because I thought that the story was going to take a turn. You said they were supposed to watch me, and I thought, like, it was going to be some kind of crazy story after that. But that's awesome. Well, there, there, is, there is a story, a very significant personal story, but I don't feel this podcast is the time to go into it. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, Jennifer. If you could, let's go into uh, your backstory. How did you get started in the film industry? It was watching Velvet and Louise when it first came out in 1991 went to a community theater here was totally blown away by it mesmerized by it to the extent that I watched it three more times I think in the same week and then it was like I was in another world after that um, it really was a profound experience for me and i I just was obsessed with the idea of if this is happening to me, is something like this happening to other people? Am I some kind of weirdo out here <laughs> and having this strange experience? So I put out, um, I just put, I put together a questionnaire about the film asking basic, just simple questions about the film and uh, put out a press release mailed these. I mean, this was, you know, before social media and all of that. So so I mailed them out to some newspapers and magazines saying, please, you know, put a notice in your in your um, release about this questionnaire. So people started writing to me asking for it. They didn't print the questionnaire, but they put a notice in and with the address and they wrote and asked for it. And then it's write out it something and send it back. And some wrote just very simple, just simple answers like my favorite character was blah, blah, blah. But others wrote pages and pages. And I saved all those for years and years, always wanting to do something with them, thinking I'd probably write something. But when it came time, finally, when I was retired and had the time and pulled it out and went over it, I realized that writing something wasn't going to, wasn't really going to do it justice. The only thing that would do it justice was to find these people and have them tell their stories about Thelma and Louise. 
this this is this is incredible right here. Like I'm getting really excited, ladies and gentlemen. I'm talking with the director producer of Catching Sight of Thelma and Louise, Jennifer Townsend. Jennifer, okay, so this is the part that I, I was talking about before we started rolling tape. You know, I have to confess. You know, in 1991, I was eight years old, eight years old, Thelma and Louise was rated R, so there was no way I was gonna see it, but I totally remember the huge buzz about this film, and the only thing that I really do remember, you know, at that time was the ending, um, and so now you are inspiring me. I need to find this movie, and then I wanna watch yours. Um, so if you could, let's go into this. I think this is just fascinating. The fact that, you know, 25 years later, you're able to catch up with um, some of these people that, you know, wrote in their original reactions. What was this like for you? Uh, it was wonderful uh, and, and always surprising. I never, because I didn't know these people. They were all over the country. And, of course, just trying to find them after 25 years. You know, many of them were students at that time in college and maybe moved six times since then. So uh, that was tricky, and I couldn't find everybody I was looking for. Uh, or sometimes I would finally, after great effort, find somebody who would then say they did not want to be in the film or they didn't even want to talk about it um, for various reasons. Uh, so um, it was it was quite a fascinating journey, just tracking people down and then showing them what they wrote. It, because most of them, quite frankly, did not remember <laughs> right. even the, the questionnaire, even writing anything. So, so they were they were surprised to see what they wrote back in the day. Uh, so it was a, a great adventure for all of us. And speaking of that adventure, you know, for those that or you're able to catch up with and connect with, um, I would imagine that 25 years later, you know, the way that people, we change over time, right? Year after year, we're different, hopefully, different human beings than we were uh, the past year. So that moment of connection with the past for them, although, I, of course, people can watch the documentary, um, I'm just trying to uh, get people excited about seeing it. What what was that experience like, you know? Because it's it's connecting with um, you from 25 years ago and the way that you probably view Thelma, Louis, Thelma and Louise in 1991 is going to be different um, 25 years later. Uh, that's a very interesting question because that's absolutely true. I'm, sh I'm sure that if I saw the film for the first time today, I would have a different reaction. What, I can't tell you, but I, I know because, as you say, all of life's experiences in between change who I am and how I see the world and my outlook and so forth. So um, what, what comes out in my film to a large extent is that the people that looked at what they wrote and read it, or some of them uh, do say, well, now I've matured more. Now I don't feel that way about a particular, maybe, um, subject or particular character, uh, blah, blah, blah. But, but many of them say, I feel, I just saw it recently, and I feel exactly the same way. I, I just, it's like the same words would come out of my mouth today. So it, it does vary like that. Wow, that is really incredible. Um, I can't wait to see this. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, again, I have director and producer of Catching Sight of Thelma and Louise on the line with me, Jennifer Townsend. Jennifer, unfortunately, we're going to have to bring the interview to a close. But if you could, uh, for the audience that's listening, how can they uh, find out more about the film, follow you guys on social media, etc.? Uh, okay, first of all, my website uh, is catchingsightof.com, just the first three words of the film, .com. I'm also on Facebook, facebook.com slash catchingsightof slash. I'm on Twitter under Far Beyond Film, which is my film company name, Far Beyond Film. 
and most especially right now because the film has not been theatrically released yet or released online. I'm getting close to that. I'm working on it. Um, but it will be shown at its very last film festival two weeks from tomorrow, which is October 19th at 2 o'clock p.m. in Richfield, Connecticut at the Richfield Independent Film Festival. So um, if they go go online to the RIFF Richfield, Richfield Film org and find it there on the website and come and see it. That's the best way to see it soon. <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> awesome. Especially if you live in New York. It's not that far. You can take the train from Pennsylvania Station um, and get close. I think it'll get you fairly close and then maybe get a lift or something if you don't want to drive. <laughs> I, I love it. Like, <laughs> Jennifer is making sure there is, no, you have no excuse. You have no excuse. She just mapped out the way to get there. Get there if you can. Uh, once again, it's director, producer of Catching Sight of Thelma and Louise, Jennifer Townsend. Jennifer, thanks so much for coming on Picture Off. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Talk to you later. Bye. Let's take a quick break for promos. Stay tuned. What if you could have a film critic, film festival director, film publicist, and fellow filmmaker guide you with your film's PR and marketing journey from pre-production to post? I'm Kevin Sampson, and my online course, PR for the Indie Filmmaker, does just that. In this course, I'm going to teach you how to set up your film to engage an audience and build a community long before you call action. I'll show you how to approach critics to make them aware of your film like publicists do. And as a director of two film festivals, I won't just teach you hacks and secrets to reduce entry fees, but how you can use the festival circuit to create buzz around your film. I'm a huge supporter of diverse storytelling and film, and I believe the most unique voices come from indie filmmakers. That's who I've supported over the years with my show, Picture Lock, whether on TV or on radio. With as much experience as I've had as an independent filmmaker myself, critic, publicist, and festival director, I realize that most indie filmmakers just need access to the knowledge that big firms provide to achieve success. So in this course, I'm going to demystify some of the process and give you everything I know and a behind the scenes look at the sides of the business you don't always see. So if you're an indie filmmaker that's looking to change the game with your film's PR and marketing, make sure you check out PR for the Indie Filmmaker. Head on over to prfortheindiefilmmaker.com and get a free preview of the course, PR for the Indie Filmmaker. Get your film seen, build community, and become an army of one. Thanks so much for listening to Picture Lock Podcast, guys. I'm always trying to find great deals on cool things that I can offer you, as you know. And with Picture Lock, Loot Crate is offering an opportunity to save 10% on any new subscription at LootCrate.com. Well, what is Loot Crate, you ask? Loot Crate is a monthly mystery crate for geeks, gamers, and fans of pop culture delivering cool and often exclusive items like collectibles, t-shirts, home goods, and more directly to your door every month. What makes Loot Crate so awesome to me is instead of getting my new graphic tees from the store each month, for the same price or less, I can get cool apparel from my favorite TV shows, movies, games, and more. And if you got a little more to shell out, you can get even bigger and better items. No matter what you pay per month, the value of the crate is usually more, so it's a win-win. You're going to search through the rack or shelves anyway. Let Loot Crate do it for you and throw a little curveball in there for you. To save 10% on any new subscription, go to trylootcrate.com slash picture lock. Again, that's trylootcrate.com slash picture lock to save 10% on any new subscription. Enter promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Picture Lock's question of the week last week was, what's your least anticipated film of the fall across all platforms? I got absolutely nothing. <laughs> 
likes, retweets, the like, but no actual answers, no call-ins, etc. So I'm going back to the drawing board. This week's question of the week in honor of First Man, what's your favorite space race film? Leave me a message 60 seconds or less on what film is your favorite space race film. And I'm going to do my best to play it on the show next week. 202-350-1351. You can always let me know on social media or email me at picturelockshow at gmail.com. And I'll read your answer next episode. Hey, this is Robert Winship, host of Death in the City. And you're listening to Picture Lock on WERA 96.7. I'm Kevin Sampson. You're listening to Picture Lock and pulsing to the beats of Angelo's original raps. Angelo Unwritten is an intimate portrait of a troubled yet gifted young man's journey through foster care. He stumbles toward adulthood, drops out of school, and gets into trouble with the law. But his foster parents never give up on him, even as he pushes them away. I have the film's director on the line, Alice Stone. Alice, welcome to Picture Lock. Thank you, Kevin. I'm so thrilled to be included in your podcast. Uh, this is an honor. I'm, I'm glad to have you on. Alice, the first question that I always start out with, when did you first fall in love with film? I know exactly when that was. I was a senior in college, and I was studying sociology and also just for fun taking a film studies course. And I saw this one independent small little film and it was it was a narrative, but I just thought there was so much truth in it, and I wanted to set, I wanted to tell stories on film. So, Alice, you're just gonna leave me hanging like that. What was the name of this film? I, it, you set it okay. up so well. <laughs> that that film that film was called Enormous Changes at the Last Minute, and it's a stories. Um, it's based on uh, short stories by Grace Paley, but they turned it into a, a film. It's a young Kevin Bacon. Um, if you want to play your six degrees, this is a good sound <laughs> to know. Um, but anyway, it was uh, just sort of three separate stories around the theme of um, single mothers, which in the 80s, you know, was really groundbreaking. Mm. Man, that's incredible. I will definitely have to check that one out. I haven't heard of that one, uh, but that is a, that's a great story. So you are a sociology major with uh, playing around in film. Is that correct? Yes, that's exactly right. Awesome. So if you could, you know, take us from, like, how did you go from a sociology major to now, you know, director of Angelo Unwritten? Give us your backstory. Well, I moved to New York. I didn't know anyone. I grew up in Chicago. I had no connections. And I stumbled across a... uh, um, a listing on an actual bulletin board back then. This is the 80s. <laughs> um, and they were looking for, uh, you know, free PAs on a movie. And it was my incredible good fortune that that movie was Swimming to Cambodia, Spalding Gray, and it was directed by Jonathan Demme. So wow. that was my in. I worked on that film for free, and then through that I uh, was able to get into the union, and I worked on two more films directed by Jonathan Demme, who um, was just a wonderful human being. Wow. So so in terms of, like, working, and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but, like, did you have, like, actual uh, direct uh, interaction with him, or was it just, like, production assistant, obviously, as you were getting into the business? Oh, well, when I say my good fortune, I mean, um, Jonathan Demme was a huge fan of Spalding Gray, who was a a performance artist and monologist, and they had no money to make this film, and he was 100% behind it. So, no, it was, uh, um, I was the apprentice editor, and it was um, the editor, Carol Littleton, and the assistant editor and myself in a loft with Jonathan Demme day after day after day. No, I really wow. I knew him very well. And actually, when I decided I wanted to make my first film, I wasn't sure that I was um, going to really take the plunge. Mm-hmm. You know, once you're in the film union um, and you have, you know, solid studio credits, you can just keep going and going and going. And once you get off that track, it's scary. 
Um, and mm. I told him about the film that I wanted to make, and he was a hundred percent encouraging and said he'd write a check and help me get started. He was, he was just fantastic. Man, that is incredible. And for the listeners who may not realize who Jonathan Demi is, uh, if you enjoyed Silence of the Lambs, Philadelphia, Rachel getting married, which I think is uh, you know um, uh, slept on film. Uh, Manchurian Candidate, you could go on and on, uh, just a, a fantastic filmmaker and director. Um, so, you know, that is amazing to hear, Alice. It's Picture Lock. I'm Kevin Sampson. I'm talking with the director of Angelo Unwritten, Alice Stone. Uh, so, if you could, let's go ahead and jump into Angelo Unwritten. Obviously, uh, your, <laughs> your bridge into the industry um, was quite a magical one. Um, let's talk about Angelo Unwritten. How did uh, the material come across your desk in terms of, you know, um, shooting this documentary? Well, th this is serendipity again. Um, I had known Angelo's foster mother, Laura, but... I hadn't really seen her. Um, I, I hadn't seen her since she had welcomed Angelo into her life. So I hadn't seen her in maybe like seven or eight years. Um, she and her husband, Phil, um, uh, met Angelo when he was 12. At that point, he had been bouncing around from one foster home to another. He'd been in the system for six years. Um, so they welcomed him into their home, and uh, things were great for the first few years, and then he hit adolescence, and things started getting rockier, and when he was 17 and a half, his caseworkers pulled him, and um, they put him back in the system, and Phil and Laura were devastated, and at that point, they um, wanted to just get some sort of media attention on this um, harm that their family had suffered, and she reached out to me because she knew I was a documentary filmmaker. I met Angelo literally on midnight of his 18th birthday when he walked out of the lockdown juvenile facility he was in carrying a hefty bag of his belongings. It's the way foster kids move from place to place to place. Right. Um, somebody shows up, somebody shows up, says you're going somewhere else, they throw everything in a trash bag and they move. So that's when I met Angelo. Um, and uh, they threw a 18th birthday party for him, which you see a little snippet of in the film, but there was a DJ, and um, Angelo picked up the microphone and just started freestyling. And I thought, wow, he's really got a talent. Um, and I could tell the camera just loved him. And uh, I thought there was a film there to just follow this family's journey. In the beginning, I thought, all right, well, he's coming home. They suffered this loss. I'll hang out with them for a year and uh, just see how they managed to overcome um, this, you know, tremendous blow that, and, and also to Angela, that he was removed from the home, the one stable home he had had for five and a half years, from 12 to 17 and a half. Um, and then just drama kept happening. Drama kept happening. Um, you know, by the end of the first year, he was... Uh, viciously attacked in his sleep at a house party, and he lost an eye. Um, he dropped in and out of school. He got into trouble. He got in trouble with the cops. He got into trouble with Phil and Laura. Um, they kicked him out. They let him back in. And I, at that point, I decided that I would make a film that was from age 18 to 21, because those are both kind of, you know, landmark ages in our culture. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we remove these kids from their biological home for, you know, their own safety, but no one ever talks about the damage we then do to them. And we, these kids grow up without a family, and then we expect them to, you know, do okay and have good outcomes as adults. So I thought I'd look at these three critical years, 18 to 21. Yeah, so if you could, like, in your own words, why do you feel that this film is an important film for people to see? Well, I think it tells a universal story of, you know, my tagline is one man's journey to belong. And I think everybody has a story, no matter what your own personal origin family story is. 
and it's family writ large. You know, there's blended families and there's step families, and then there's families that we create as adults. Um, and it's really a story about those families. And I also think that it's a story about literally the most vulnerable people in our society, you know, um, yeah. children who don't have families. Yeah, I, I think it's extremely uh, important to highlight that. You know, Tiffany Haddish, as you were talking earlier about the black bags and how they move around, um, she she started this thing where she collects suitcases um, because she grew up in the foster care system and she feels like if she could give a suitcase to some of the foster care kids, um, then at least for the one thing that is their world, their stuff, um, it's not going into a plastic bag, which, you know, in their own mind can say, oh, you're trash. Um, so it's, it's, a, sure. it's a huge yeah. thing that we definitely need to talk about. Um, unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap up on the interview, and I'd love to have you back on because I know, um, you know, you have some things coming out in the future where people might be able to actually um, see the film. But if you could, for those that are listening, how can they follow you, uh, follow the film on social media? Well, we have a website. It's the film's title, AngeloUnwritten.com. And we're also on Facebook at Angelo Unwritten. And we do have a whole big rolling out screenings across the country plan in the works. And we're hoping to be at a theater near you soon. Director of Angelo Unwritten, Alice Stone. Alice, thanks so much for coming on Picture Lock. Thank you, Kevin. Hi, everyone. This is Julia Camera, writer, director, producer of In Transit, and you're listening to Picture Lock. It's Picture Lock. I'm Kevin Sampson, and starting out on foot from Aleppo, Syria, the filmmakers behind Sky and Ground followed the Nabi family from Syria to Germany. I have the film's director and producer, Talia Tebon, on the line. Talia, welcome to Picture Lock. Hi, glad to be here. <laughs> well, I'm, Thanks for having me. No problem. It's my pleasure. I'm excited to talk with you about this film. If you could, Talia, the first question I always start out with, when did you first fall in love with film? You know what? I'm, I'm not sure I can really even remember because it, for someone like me, my generation, it was something I grew up with. So I remember myself growing up, you know, and as a treat once a week being taken to the movies. <laughs> I think for me, a question is, when did I fall, up, uh, fall in love with documentary film? And that's crazily enough. Um, I think I was, I grew up in Israel. Um, and I think when I was about, ridiculously enough, uh, nine or ten, uh, Claude Lanzmann's Holocaust came out. Hmm. And we were, um, this is Israel, so we were basically forced to watch nine hours of a documentary about the Holocaust. Wow. And I remember wow. the kids kind of like trying to figure out like who they can pick on and like whose hair they can pull. And I was just like so drawn in. And I love the idea that you can take a story, something that happened so long ago, and bring it to life through people's memories and stories and, and connect them with, with pictures. So I think that was, for me, I always liked movies. But if I need to remember when I start started liking documentaries, I think it was, weirdly enough, Claude Lanzmann, horrific and horrifying to look at, but, but fascinating Holocaust. Right, right. And I think that speaks to the magic of cinema, right? Where um, it takes us, it transports us, and whether it's learning through, you know, the atrocities of the Holocaust or just being entertained from the latest, you know, Marvel film, um, there's something about the magic of cinema. So if you could, um, you know, take us from the girl uh, <laughs> who is spending nine hours watching this documentary to the woman now who's directing Sky and Ground. How did you break into the industry? Um, so, yeah, I had a sort of slightly different um, uh, way because I, I, I didn't grow up in the industry. I didn't grow up in the U.S. Um, I think growing up in Israel... Um, kept me it's a country that is very much connected to the here and now um and so i was always sort of into the the journalism side of it and to tell a real story of something that that was happening found myself um or sort of aimed myself towards um army service there 
um, at the army radio station, there is something like that. So mm-hmm. like, good morning, Vietnam. There is a good morning, Israel. And uh, I served as um, a radio correspondent uh, for their news division, covering, uh, luckily, arts and culture. Um, yes. But but I sort of like the, the sort of whole business of telling stories and, and finding ways to bring them and um, things that I experienced. I grew up quite involved in the arts. I wanted to be, at one point, I wanted to be an actor and I wanted to be a dancer. And I remember um, being able to convey, having watched my favorite choreographer, um, Pina Bausch coming to Israel and putting up one of her most amazing shows and sort of working really hard on trying to convey what I just saw, what I just experienced mm. through radio. And, 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 and it is, it all at the end comes together to do the same thing. It's about telling stories. And I come from a family where telling stories is part of entertainment and, 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 and that's how we kind of either talk about other people telling our own stories um, and a culture that is quite connected to the here and now. So those two things connected for me. Um, I did my army service there as a journalist. I then moved to the to the U.S. Um, and interned at school with news uh, organizations. I worked at CBS. I worked a little bit at, as an intern um, at CNN. And then I was offered as as I was finishing uh, grad school, and I chose not to do um, not to study TV or film. Um, I was always into it. I was always interested in it, but I thought that I wanted to get education that was sort of broader in terms of the, 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 the tools that it gives you and then go back to this. So I, I studied actually international affairs, um, but the school I was at gave us access to the School of Journalism. So I grabbed the camera <laughs> And um, as a grad school uh, student concentrating on Eastern European politics, I still did little films about, um, as a student, one of them was about the S&M scene um, becoming mainstream in New York. (laughs) And another one was uh, about a TSA screening woman who decided to run uh, for mayor in New York. Sort of kind of random esoteric little films that... uh, Help me hone skills, I think. Um, I ended up finishing school and taking a job as, as one needs to, especially after going to some of those programs. Um, and I ended up at CNN for um, about 10 years. Um, and at CNN, I was I was a producer on um, um, initially on financial news, but then on um, primetime show, which the APM, uh, which meant you get to experiment with different way of telling a story. So from a minute to, to 20, but I, I just always wanted to get back to making a film. Nice. All right. Okay. So, um, long story, long, <laughs> long road. Yeah. That's okay. I, I, but I want to jump into sky and ground. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to picture lock. I'm talking with the director producer of sky and ground, Talia Tabone. Talia, uh, if you could, in your own words, what is this film all about? This film um, tells the story of one family. Um, They are one family out of hundreds of thousands who um, in the last four or five years were trying to um, find safety and, and, and find a place where they can regain their lives or regain um, um, some some sense of normalcy in their lives. Um, this family happens to be from Syria, they're Kurdish, um, and their goal is to get to Berlin, where some uh, members of this extended family are already, um, are already there. And at the time they left, um, they sort of missed the boat a little bit because in 2015 and 16, more than a million people already made that journey and arrived in Germany. By the time they got their act together, and there are 15 of them, so that's quite a lot of people to get their act together, Right. the borders were closed. So the film tells the story through footage that they um, shot themselves before we met them in Syria and in Turkey. Um through their time in a refugee camp, trying to figure out if waiting around would help out and eventually someone will open will open a border for them or whether they should do it 
on their own and eventually they decide to take the risk which uh, without without to give giving up too much uh, is a risk taking taking the road like that um, and try to make it to Germany themselves through seven closed borders Wow. So if you could, um, you know, especially for the audience that is listening, which are probably a lot like me, you know, we hear about um, Syrian refugees and, you know, this migration. Um, but in some ways, like, it doesn't really matter because, it, you know, we're not making the journey. It's not our family. Um, why is this an important story to tell? And why is it important that people see this film? Um. I'm glad you asked that. I think I think it, it, it's one of the things that had come up, which is you know in the U.S. there are other issues, and and Syria is seems to most people in the U.S. quite far away, and sort of a headline you catch, and these days less and less. Right. Um, you know, a, a quick clip on your on your CNN brief or whatever. Um, but in many ways, by choosing one little family. And this project that, that the film was initially part of, which is called Humanity on the Move, was trying to show the big picture. But I focus on this one family because I thought that if you can connect to the human side of the experience and you see a family that, you know, they may be dressed a tiny bit different than what you're used to in D.C. or New York. But other than that, there are so many similarities. If you see them sort of like bickering around as they're going on like this heroic journey, you just kind of think about family dynamics and how, you know, it works. There's always someone who's a little bit negative and how that impacts a family. There's always someone who's like trying to keep it all together for, for everybody else. There's sort of like grandmother that everyone is terrified of. So there was something <laughs> about bringing the humanity of, of this family and what they have to go through. And, and something that happens during this process where they really opened up and were very relaxed with the cameras to the point that sometimes they forgot the cameras were there. Sometimes it was their own camera. The day really, you know, they didn't try to appear a certain way in front of the camera. And when they're like, screw that, we're done. Sorry. We're done here. We don't want to do this anymore. Let's go back. Or you you hear, you know, um, a member of the family, she, she said, they asked her, so what do you want to do? And she's like, just go back to Syria. I don't care. I can't do this anymore. Um, you know, it's it just kind of gives you... Um, a window to this experience and, and its randomness because these people didn't choose to be victims of this civil war in Syria. They didn't take part in it. They just one day it got to their doorstep and they had to try and endure it, move around. There's a lot of, I think something like a third of the population of Syria is internally dis displaced. Mm -hmm. um, and when that didn't work, they just tried whatever they could. They had kids. They wanted to make sure the kids had um, um, a safe future and education and access to the very, very basic. Um, and they decided the only way they could do it is by taking the risk of, of leaving. So I think that telling the story is now we're dealing with people in Syria or in Africa um, next week or Rohingya in, in um, Myanmar. Next week it will be somebody else and it will be connected to a family in the U.S. in a different kind of way. I also think that in times, in our very, very uh, strained political times now, where the U.S. has actually tightened its policy towards refugees, and um, it just came out last week that this past year the U.S. allowed a total of 20,000, 22,000 okay. refugees into the country. Maybe people, by seeing this film, and it's running right now on, on um the world channel you can stream it people would sort of stop to think about how those changed policies affect the people who could be rescued from what's going on in their countries who um, um, have kids who want to have you know an opportunity and a better future right. um, and maybe and maybe you know vote that way so it's it's it might be a conflict that is far from 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 uh, us in the US but one this time it's far. We don't know what um, environmental issues would cause in terms of um, a refugee crisis, and that could be near enough to the U.S. And second, very specifically about 
U.S. policies towards um, allowing people who flee war and conflict to to have the right to try and get a better life in the U.S. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm Kevin Sampson. I'm talking with the director producer of Sky and Ground, Talia Tabone. Talia, unfortunately, we're going to have to bring this to a close, and I kind of want to just keep talking because I think this is um, really great information. But for the audience that's listening, um, how can they keep up with the film online, social media, etc.? So, as I said, the film is part um, of a series that uh, was meant to initially go together as three films. Um, it's called Humanity on the Move. So, humanityonthemove.org uh, will be the website, and it also offers some ideas of what to do if you want to get involved. Um, there are two other um, films in the series that are streaming on um, um, the worldchannel.org. Um, one of them is called is called Los Comandos. Tells a story um, of of a girl in Salvador who's trying to find her way out. Um, and another one is called To the North. These are both shorts um, telling the story of a woman and her daughter trying to make it to the border. All three are are screening for the next week or so. Still on, um, as I said, the World Channel org. Um, and I think the uh slot is called doc world so if you go to their website you can screen it that way awesome. we will hear about uh, i'll just finish that we're just waiting to hear about further uh distribution deals that are in the works awesome ty Tabone, director producer of sky and ground thanks so much for coming on picture lock thanks so much kevin that's all for this episode i'd like to thank my guests jennifer townsend Alice Stone and Talia Tabone for coming on the show. For you radio listeners, make sure you subscribe to the podcast to hear Talia's after show conversation with me. It's only available on the podcast, but it has a host of information. As you all know, this is a new segment that I've started up, the after show segment, in which I can actually give you guys practical, useful information as to uh, how you can use PR and marketing to get your indie film out there. So you definitely want to check that out. I'll be dropping it on Monday. You can do that in iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, Blueberry, wherever you catch your podcast. You definitely don't want to miss the after show. And if you're a fan of Alexa skills, just say, Alexa, play Picture Lock Podcast, and I'll come right up. Feel free to leave a five-star review. It just helps to get the show out more to the masses. You can find Picture Lock on most social media. All social media is at Picture Lock Show. Watch back episodes of the TV show at youtube.com slash Picture Lock Show and subscribe. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, you can fill out the form on the website. This week's question of the week is, what's your favorite space race movie? Drop me a voicemail at 202-350-1351 or send me an email and let me know at picturelockshow at gmail.com or, of course, any of Picture Lock's social media pages, and I'll talk about it on the air next week. Our music is done by Mike S, the producer 13. Thanks, bro. I'm Kevin Sampson, and until next time, I hope you stay locked on film. Picture Lock.